This is Spiritual Reality Plainly Seen, the podcast that takes a look at spirituality in our lives and the world around us. Here's your host, Dr. Frank Kaufman. Very excited to be here today with uh, former ambassador, United States ambassador to the United Nations, Mark Siljander. We have a very important matter to discuss. But first, let me say a word about who Mark is. Mark Siljander spent over three decades in Washington, D.C., starting as a Republican United States congressman and a Senate-confirmed United States ambassador to the United Nations. He has participated in the United States National Prayer Breakfast for 40 years. Mark is the author of a best-selling and award-winning book, A Deadly Misunderstanding, a Congressman's Quest to Bridge the Muslim-Christian Divide. It was published by HarperCollins. Siljander's book recounts his journey of discovery and transformation, starting as a young evangelical Cold War-era hawk to eventually becoming a trailblazing peacemaker, both pre- and post-9-11, especially between Muslims and Christians working with the leadership in countries such as Libya, Iraq, Pakistan, and the Central African Republic, among others. Most prominently, Siljander developed and helped draft the United Nations Security Council resolution that deployed UN peacekeepers in Darfur, Sudan, preventing the genocide. His book, which chronicles these quiet peacemaking efforts, was endorsed by a diverse group of political and religious leaders, including the then sitting United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, United States Secretary of State James Baker, United States Attorney General Edwin Meese, Democrats and Republicans alike, including Congressman and Nobel Prize nominee Tony Hall, Democrat from Ohio, and an Iranian Ayatollah, Dr. Ahmad Iravani. Former Secretary of State James Baker endorsed Siljander's book, saying it was a blueprint for breaking this logjam of dissension that contributes to so much religious conflict today. Mark Siljander's peacemaking efforts and his stint as a United States ambassador to the United Nations were acknowledged by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who publicly recognized, and quote, efforts towards a more just and human, just, humane and peaceful world, end quote. He was presented with the Mohandas K. Gandhi International Peace Award in 1996 by the Indian American community in Washington, D.C. Mark Siljander's academic achievements include a master's degree in political science and postgraduate PhD work in international business and doctor of education studies in education. Mark is an avid Semitic linguistic student Ambassador Siljander has served on numerous academic boards and lectured in many higher educational institutions in Khartoum and numerous diverse 
institutions such as Oxford University, Edinburgh University, Wheaton College, United Nations, and the European Union. It is an enormous privilege for me to be with Mark today. Please welcome Mark to our program. Congressman, welcome. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you, Frank. Thank you. Is it all right if I uh, call you Mark uh, during our time together? Of course, we're friends and uh, that's my name. <laughs> Perfect. Excellent, excellent. Um, Mark, I know, I know you through so many different hats and our listeners have also heard a brief, a brief touch on the range of your biography all the way from a several term congressman to uh, US ambassador to the United Nations and even as a linguistic scholar so uh, there's a lot, there's probably many, many interviews that you and I should do together. But for this particular time together, I'm going to be focusing on a work that you've recently become involved in that has to do with the tragic situation and kind of shocking situation that has erupted in Afghanistan since the US withdrawal. That's, is that fine with you that we just stick to this as our topic today? Indeed. Wonderful. So the, the U.S. withdrawal, I believe, was by the clock at August 31st sharp. Is that correct by my memory? August 31st, the last of us was out yeah. of there. And then the world saw these horrifying scenes of people holding on to the outside of planes and the like. Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of politics surrounding the analysis of our withdrawal. And then, of course, very soon after that, I think within 10 or 11 days, 15 U.S. servicemen lost their life in a uh, suicide attack near the airport, just outside the airport. This, too, would be a topic for especially a person with the political acumen such as yourself, but this is not where we're gonna to focus today. We're really concentrating on the relief work and then beyond that, the kind of cultural dialogue that you are trying to pursue, first the humanitarian effort, and then to see if there can be some long-term improvement to help the citizens of Afghanistan. Is that correct? Yes, indeed, that's also correct. Thank you, Frank. Good. Okay, uh, Mark. So when I received a brief summary of the work you're doing, first reference, well, I'll just read the first sentence of, the, of what I've used to familiarize myself. And it says, there are 15,000 rescued Afghan located in humanitarian city in the Middle East. Our network can rescue thousands more. So right there in the first sentence and a half, there's a couple of questions that will probably help our hearers. Can you, can you start out by, by helping us understand what is this reference, humanitarian city? Well, I'm not a, I've been asked not to be overly specific with the country and location, although okay. I can't imagine that most people don't already know, but that's what I've been asked regardless. Very good. But it's in, but, it's in the Gulf, 
and there it's a, it's a, it's called the humanitarian city. It's for Afghans that have been flown or uh, somehow rescued out of harm's way in Afghanistan. So there's been a concerted effort to rescue asylum seekers and also on humanitarian need refugees from, and, and one of the countries in the Gulf has generously set up a place where these refugees can be housed or uh, uh, taken care of. And there, these, uh, these people should be relocated. Is that correct? So the humanitarian city is kind of a holding place to get human beings out of Afghanistan as the first step. Exactly. And I wish I could say uh, the name of the country and I'm and hopefully will have, be released from that uh, obligation because they're honestly doing a much better job than the U.S. Army did with the, ba with the bases where we piled tens of thousands of people living literally in their own feces. And it was an embarrassment to our country, an embarrassment to the heart of this nation that gives more than any nation, even per capita in the entire world. It was such, the whole thing, and I'm not trying to be political at all, it was a boondoggle from the very beginning and continues to be. And the reason I can't mention or should not mention, but asked not to mention the name of the country is because our State Department has uh, for some reason asked the leadership in this part of the world not to cooperate with the private groups such as so many within our vast network to, but, it, but out of, we have to because our government promised most of these people who are either Christian in a small percentage or almost all of them at some level worked with or alongside or involved with either the US military or some government or NGO yes. that promised to take care of them. And we yes. have to take care of some uh, the, the Biden administration did, did airlift, I don't know, several hundred thousand. I told where they are, I have no idea. Uh, but I can tell you that there were, there were tens of thousands left behind. And now all private uh, entities are raising their own money from private uh, sources, not government, yeah. to try to rescue the people. And now they're stuck in this city. But this country, in conclusion, is doing a masterful job. They, they've given most all of them, I understand, uh, COVID-19 vaccine. There mm -hmm. was an outbreak, for example, of measles, which can be uh, you know, deadly to children yes. and others unless, so yes. they start vaccinating people. They live in at least reasonable, acceptable conditions, vastly better, as we alluded to earlier, and we offer so many of the refugees back in the beginning. So this country is really owed a, a, a debt of gratitude for how they, how well they treated these these fifteen thousand. Mm -hmm. It's very moving to hear. One gets emotional when 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 whenever one hears a whole country taking up a grand humanitarian posture. I myself was uh, worked during the um, Balkan Wars 
uh, and I was working in the refugee camps in Croatia. And the nation of Croatia was hugely, uh, unimaginably sacrificial in setting up and, and, and caring for refugees. A huge amount of its GDP was committed. And it's always moving when a country has that uh, grandeur. So I look forward to when we'll learn who they are, especially as you've praised them so clearly. It's hard not to be political, uh, and we'll both we'll both co constrain ourselves in this because it's not the purpose of our conversation today. But the these refugee camps that you described that the U.S. was running that were run in such uh, unsanitary and inhumane conditions were these outside Afghanistan or where? Yeah. Where? Okay. And so they must still exist also being trying to dig out of this bad infrastructure in these camps, I guess. Well, you must... know, I really don't know because we are so consumed with, first of all, we were getting people out and putting them in the humanitarian city. And they, this country offered, I think it was four or 5,000 well, obviously, with three times that number, uh, they still took that many people. But they're saying before you bring more, because they're keep in mind they're housing, feeding. I mentioned the medical attention, mm. and they're uh, you know helping them with uh, every, every, their basic needs. Um, we before we can bring more, we mm. have to find permanent home countries for yes. them. So that's yes. our present um, obligation, which is, uh, Frank, it's, it's so, it's a matrix of complexities mm. to move these people in, in these large groups to any country because who's gonna pay for it? Yes. I mean, who's yeah. gonna pay for their, what, what, their housing, their food, their medical, who's gonna train them uh, who's going to determine what talents people have? Who's a doctor? Who's a lawyer? Who's a truck driver? Who's yeah. retired? Who's disabled? Who's blind? Who can, you know, all these different things. We have how many children, how many elderly? These are all questions that, that, uh, that we literally, this network, which I have to give them great tribute as well, of very diverse people, very diverse, Christian, Muslim, um, you know, people who don't have any faith, they're all, they're bonding in a sense over the humanitarian crisis that these, all these poor people were facing. And yes. uh, so we are slowly trying to figure this out, but you would hope that some government, you know, with, we spent 2.3 trillion in 20 years in Afghanistan, you think they could give us one-tenth of 1% one or spend that themselves, and that we could find host countries, train them, identifying their talents uh, for all of them, and then we could bring another five or ten thousand out. Yes, there's so much you've raised just in your first commentary here that I'd like to unpack if we have time. But one of the you mentioned a network, so it's a multi-religious community of of concerned individuals who are working with all different forms 
of talents from international travel logistics to language and translate. It's, it's a network that has just created itself to serve this sudden crisis. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And I kind of look at, you're on the board of track five in Bridges to Common Ground, which is an NGO that tries to build bridges of understanding and make peace. We're using our networks and connecting people. We feel like we're ligaments to bring an mm. arm to, uh, you know, to the to the shoulder and the shoulder to the chest, and we're creating a a really unbelievable network of incredibly talented people with very unique uh, competencies that can be brought to the table. Like for example, one has software in various languages that can identify the skill sets of people in refugee situations like this. So then we can tell a host country, well, we have 10 doctors, we have uh, 3,000 3, people who could work in a mine, we have 4,000 people that have some talent in, in oil and gas, or nurses, or doctors, mm. or, how, or, or daycare experts, I mean, we, artists, we need to know who are these people so we can present them as in a more compelling case to these various countries who are at least for negotiating. Why should we negotiate? You know, won't you think one of, uh, one of the Western governments of powerhouses of the world would, would take care of this these 15,000 people and so we can bring more, but really it's sort of left up to us. In fact, we're not, not only are they not helping, some of these government entities, I'd argue, are actually obstructionists. Mm, yes. Oh, it's already hard so early in this con in this interview or conversation. It's already hard to breathe as I uh, and we haven't even scratched the surface here. One of the uh, questions that I had as uh, is, one gets the impression that getting people out of Afghanistan is manageable. Uh, uh, an average layperson, I think, kind of thought the country locked down, the airports are closed, the, the Taliban control Bagram and, and, and Kabul and, and, and try, like, try to find some way to get your aunt across the border, you know, through the mountains. Or, but you're talking about moving thousands upon thousands. Uh, what is the reality? The Taliban says, take them, we don't want them. Or, or how, how, how is it, what is the reality about people who want to leave uh, the posture of the Taliban and the possibility to leave? Well, that's, that's a very good question, Frank. Um, first of all, there's certain elements that are best not broadcast. Yes. What we can say is that we're losing people every day. For example, mm. one of in, in the track five smaller network, we we were achieved at getting 371 people out in an, a, one airplane, and it cost $850,000 mm. to bring those people out and get them to the city. Think of this: 850,000 U.S. dollars. For it's 300, for 400 people. And you just would cry to see these children on their families' laps and crowding airplanes. And sometimes the Taliban, not in our case, 
would board the plane and start picking people out and you never see them again. I mean, it's, you know, they're so happy. We're on an airplane, we're leaving, and then they come pick them up. There's so many heart-wrenching circumstances. And even one of our close allies is the Seventh-day Adventist Network. They had 22 people on their list to get out. And there are only four alive. The rest have been murdered. They go house to house. I mean, what's happening on the ground is we don't hear about it. All we hear about is Biden and and, uh, the elections and Trump, you know, what he's saying. But there's what's happening is a lot of it's our doing. You see, the U.S., 20 years of U.S. involvement. And we look back and all the deaths and mayhem in country and all the American sacrifice that sacrificed their lives and limbs and $2.3 trillion. And you wonder, what was what what did we get out of it? The Taliban control and ISIS threatening and killing seven children in a US drone strike. Oops, we made a mistake. We don't yeah. know that, that we're killing children and innocent people rather than terrorists with yes. all the intelligence, drones, satellites, over 20 years we've developed in that country. It's just mind boggling to me as a former US congressman that somewhat understands the dynamics of these things. Mm. Oh gosh, Mark. Yeah, you're making it hard because to be this close with the lives of children. And and when I read your thing, okay, we have 15,000, they need to be resettled. And I'm thinking, oh, well, maybe people get out more easily. But then when you say there's a plane with 371, you get more of the picture of it's really hard. It's really touch and go. It's life and death. It's leaving in the night. It's probably undercover, like the Underground Railroad kind of thing of getting some people here or there. So it's probably... I mean, even just to get people out is probably like life and death, like razor's edge stuff going on, I guess. Um, yes. What, mm. Yes, it is. We, we, for example, certain people networks on the ground there. Remember, we're talking about it's not one network. It's not government. They're not spies. These are just people who have either relationships, connections, in lists of people they want to get out that they they know. Anyway, these networks were able to collaborate in a way with the right people to get them through all these checkpoints. And sometimes these checkpoints are shut and sometimes they're open. You have to know when to get them through. And there's also some people that are coming uh, over ground and uh, of one of a person that came to my attention is a former special forces in Europe. And that's his specialty is helping people get over the borders in these uh, types of environments. So mm. now he's working with, you know, hundreds of people to get them out where we're going to put them or they're going to, we don't even know yet, but we have to at least get them somewhere. Yes, because they are—they literally not all of them, but many, many face imminent death or uh, separation of family. Yes. So, at the very start of this, uh, I I openly describe this as a bungled 
a bungled um, close, you know, close of the U.S. involvement or debacle. At the very end of that, there were a couple of fleeting moments of a kind of, and people were trying to pitch to public media of a new Taliban that want to govern. You know, every, everybody knows, of course, that they are relatively extremist in their social posture, but they were trying to present themselves and, and willing media was trying to present them as somehow a different entity, not just, not just a murderous band of marauders, but right. Do you remember this in the first couple of days? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and was, th was this even a little bit the genuine hope of any of the, of the Taliban leadership, or was it was it just straight? Um, I don't want to call it. I don't know what to call it. This, was it straight? We have no intention of doing this. This is what we're saying publicly. Or did it devolve? Did it get worse? Or what is what is the? Help us understand what we've heard and what you're describing. Well, interestingly, Frank, it's all of what you said. Some elements want to be a new a new Taliban. Taliban. Uh, version two. Other elements want to go back to the old Taliban with all burqas and and um, controlling everything, especially women do in uh, Afghanistan. And so there are competing forces within the Taliban. Now there are ISIS-K, as they're called, yes. uh, who think the Taliban are too moderate. <laughs> yes, that's they're, correct. They're the group that killed the service personnel and hundreds of uh, Afghans in the bombing near the airport that you yes. earlier. So now we have elements of ISIS, K or whatever one wants to term them, with ex very extreme. And we have 20 years of indoctrination by many young people, especially and at the madrasas in Pakistan, yes, where they were during U.S. occupation or U.S. whatever you want to call it, um, and then they came back and now they're radicalized. So I would say it's peaceful Af Afghans, extreme Afghans, ISIS K. It's all and how it all will ferret out over time. Only God knows. Yes, I would imagine, or I've presumed that ISIS-K is not merely a more extreme form of kind of social militancy, but, but a group that is overtly hostile to the Taliban per se, like perhaps ethnically or tribally. It isn't just more extreme. It's a, it's a different strain of uh, either, either tribal or ethnic identification. In, in addition to being more committed to physical violence and terrorism, but I, I, I presume that they were also a hostile community to the Taliban, not just a more extreme wing of it. Do you know? Yes. Then yeah. you, you, you've hit it. There's tribal issues. There's factions of Taliban. There are factions of extremism within each of the tribes. It's not an you, it's not a, a one-fits-all, so to speak, spiritual or religious or ideological perspective. It's yes. many competing forces within tribes, extra-tribal, inner-tribal, 
And I don't claim to be an uh, expert in Afghanistan, but I can certainly, I certainly know what I'm hearing from all these networks that are combining. And Frank, if you knew, and if your listeners knew how extremely diverse these networks are hardcore military, but compassionate to Mormons, mm. to evangelicals, as I mentioned Seventh-day Adventists, mm. to Muslims, to atheists, to people who have just um, humanitarian art. They're just, they're political right. people that are doing this privately. Right. They're just a, from every conceivable walk of life. There are even some radio personas, you know, Glenn Beck would publicly yes. throws he raised like 30 some million dollars and Beautiful. we're also you know he's part we're we're working with his people as well so yes. it's it's not like oh this is just um american no we have more than americans and it's not just christian or conservatives it's ex it's extremely diverse with all one purpose to help humans in a time of crisis in life-threatening situations. Yes. Oh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, there's just a, a couple of things before I shift to the outer, uh, exterior questions of once they're out of Afghanistan and the resettlement of them and costs. I'm gonna move to that in a second. But, oh, 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 I just wanted to comment when you were talking about the nature of the people in your network. I remember once being on a plane and I'm sitting next to, a man who looked like he was just just made out of pure steel out of central casting a marine you know and he, he over the when the meal came he goes what do you do and i felt so kind of embarrassed like a soft-handed guy i said i run a peace foundation and he goes we're in the same business you know you're a warrior and uh that's what you're describing now, these are these are people in the military that are radically committed to humanitarian causes and and for peace, that's why they do what they do. Is that correct? Yes, for, I work with a retired two-star Air Force general on a weekly basis. And he is as much of a peace person as I've ever met. That's and it. He, he was served in Afghanistan, both Iraq campaigns. Yeah. And uh, he and I have a very, uh, a bonded camaraderie of hoping, hoping we can do better, and 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 with the military, and more as peacekeepers and war makers. Yes, yeah, we really have to. All of us have to work on getting our superficiality stripped from our eyes. Right? We never know who we're looking at and who we're working with. Uh, we can't work on stereotypes and prejudices. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Mark, I was reading a piece by a fellow named uh, Madiha Afzal. Uh, he wrote it in an, an emerging media uh, effort called Persuasion. They try to hold the center. And in his piece, he described, he says, here's his sentence. The country is now on the brink of a humanitarian catastrophe with nearly 21, 23 million people facing acute food insecurity. There are two different types of desperation or urgency. One is if you've had any association with prior governments or with the efforts, uh, nation building efforts, anybody who's worked with you, they're in danger for their lives and you've described. 
thousands are getting are are losing their lives as under political uh, attack right inside of Afghanistan. Then there's also what this what this writer talks about as people facing acute food insecurity. But the number the reason why I brought it up or kept it when for speaking with you is that number 23 million. Uh, now you're talking about 15,000. You're talking, uh, I haven't brought it up yet, but you're talking about the costs uh, per person that you need to get them placed in some country or another. Uh, can you speak to, I mean, is part of the resistance you face, like out of the 15,000, X, you know, each one costs X for repatriation or, or settlement. And, and a country that they, they just kind of, they just see a flood. They, they're afraid to start even with a little because it looks like there's no end behind what comes if we're gonna, do you see what I mean? They'd rather turn a blind eye. So yeah, I'm not sure your question. My question is, is part of the difficulty you find in settling people is that the governments, it's not that they're unwilling to pay a few thousand dollars per person and get a few thousand people out of this temporary humanitarian city. It's not that they're unwilling to go for those few dollars, but this writer talks about 23 million people facing acute food insecurity in Afghanistan now. And so it's rather these countries are, uh, are afraid to open the floodgate and would rather just whistle in the dark or turn a blind eye that's my that's my question okay there are two separate groups of people that are those that the western world particularly the united states made a commitment to protect yes because they worked in some capacity with some related entity as we mentioned earlier that yes. those are whom we're focused on and religious persecution as well for fear of the extreme element of the, the Taliban or ISIS-K. So we, it, the countries really don't have to worry about 23 million people flooding their countries because there's no way for them to get out. I mean, it's okay. very, very expensive and difficult, even across the border. The borders are locked down very tightly, although okay. some mountainous areas and very perilous to attempt to cross. So understood. I, I know that uh, the World Food Program says globally that almost 65% of, of hunger and poverty globally is caused by conflict. And it's just a good example mm. of, of a good chunk of that, uh, just in Afghanistan. And mm. so many countries are under conflict. And so we wait till everything's a horrific crisis and we spend trillions of dollars to try to fix it militarily. And then we have to spend billions of dollars to try to fix the fallout of it all. When if we would have spent maybe one eighth of 1% of that money on conflict resolution in the beginning, we might have been able to mitigate or obfuscate it altogether. Understood. Yeah, of course. Ounce of prevention. So right now, this nation, this this saintly nation, 
or humanitarian nation has they they initially offered you five thousand places and they've they've allowed that number to swell to fifteen and they're at their limit now, correct? Yes. And we're trying to you're trying to move people out of that city so that we can bring more through that funnel. But yes. it's, it's it's a logjam right now because the difficulty of trying to find resettlement for those people out into various Western nations, or they don't have to be Western, any nations where they can live safely is, uh, is the logjam right now. And in your notes, you describe costs, costs for resettlement that you said that the existing network can pay for between five and 9,000 of these 15. And then you add, but for a limited, perhaps six to 10 months, depending on the cost. And I'm wondering, uh, are, are you, is your network trying to find permanent resettlement and, and refugee status to become, to be on the path to citizenship in the countries where they will be placed? Or, or is this a constant support for them as non-residents of the countries to which would receive them or, welcome, or, or allow them to come in? Well, that though that's a very long-term question when you talk about permanent residency or citizenship. We're just trying to find countries, and we're nego- our network is negotiating with at least five now, and they range from Europe, Asia, Middle East, and Latin America at the moment. Mm. And but we have to get them from where they are to there. That's a cost, yes. and then where are they going to live? And certain countries have uh, facilities like resorts and hotels we can literally take over, but some we have to, someone has to pay yes. for each person or per night, per room, and also for food and medical attention. And, but what do you do next? There's no plan. No. See, this is what is maddening, Frank. We, we are, you, we're just private citizens. We have our own lives, our own businesses to run. And yes. yet we have to bring people together that can, as, as I said earlier, assess talents, who, who can do what. No one's done that. No one even thought has thought of it. This is, mm. you have to understand, we had this administration had eight months to work these logistics out. And it's like all of a sudden they said, okay, let's get everyone out. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to accept this deadline and not go a minute after it. And all of a sudden they're just moving people. I mean, it was complete, as you saw in the news clips, in total chaos. So yes. this is, what's frustrating me is coming from the United States of America, we have not even considered any of this. And the people that are pulled these 15,000, I asked them all, well, what's the plan? They said, we have no plan. Mm. Our plan was to save them from imminent death. Okay, yes. we don't know. What do you think? I said, you asking me? <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is not my area of expertise. But what about language training? Where are they going? In mm. cultural training. So you understand the culture, norms, and assessment of potential, what can they do and help and who's going to pay for it? I mean, it, it is, so we're still struggling through this, but I would say through prayer and, and hard work, 
this network of all these, as I alluded to earlier, all these town people that have a certain area of talents that yes. will together make a, a, a potential uh, dynamic that we could actually find host countries and find the resources to host them for a limited amount of time till they can get their own jobs and yes. be productive citizens or, or workers in this country, these countries. Yes. And it, it's so, it's so complex. I mean, you and I both know that trying to do even a small thing and there's, there's eight balls in the air and one guy, one guy craps out and everything falls apart. And you're trying to do this on a global level in the most complex arrangements, plus all of it with political implications. And the, the stress of it, even for me just listening to you describe this, is that we're trying to clear, we're trying to clear a place for the next temporary group. We're trying to create some kind of cycle or stream or flow so that people can keep getting out. And with every day that is held up, there's, there's death, there's loss of life, right? Every, every day, every minute. Every minute. So there's 15,000 clogged up in the humanitarian city. If we could get 1,000 out, there'd be another, there'd be, we could move another thousand back into that space and just keep, get something flowing is, is, what, is what the need is now. Yes, and this host country is even offered to train and help take three or four thousand to work, you know, within the country. Mm, so if, mm. they, if they do that, uh, that would be great. But they're expecting us to perform, you know, to take at least two thousand people. If we could get yeah. two thousand, uh, then they would they they'd say, okay, you're, there's movement now. Yeah. We're, open to bringing more but you just can't like you said you can't just open the floodgates and just bring non-stop people and they no one can tolerate that yeah yeah oh man uh mark you've you've we're so grateful you we're so grateful that that you've come into this community especially with your unique talents and history as a peacemaker i wanted to go into the i wanted to go into the side of your unique vision of track five diplomacy with, uh, with the Taliban. But I think, I think I've hit the part, the point at which I'd like to close on this. I, I think we have a, a clear and focused a piece of new knowledge that you've provided for us. And you've helped us see the challenge that we face and, and in a way, Apologies to the listeners. What we've heard now, we're in it now together. There are people and people's lives at stake. And we're grateful to you, Mark, for, for being, as always, giving your all with a big heart. Mark, is there anything a listener can do? I, I mean, we're all, we're all going to be praying. We all got to pray now. We know more than we knew a half hour ago. In addition, anything... That, that we need to do as the inheritors of what we've learned today. You know, really what you said, I believe in prayer, as you know, Frank, it's not just a joke. People say, well, pray for me and they forget it 10 seconds later. <laughs> this yeah. prayer is serious. We are praying, I was sitting listening 
talking to a smaller element of the network and they have no plans. They had, they had no idea what to do with the people. I was almost in tears and I was just calling out to, I call him Galway, please, what should we do? And I just got a sense that we just need to keep praying for the right people. And all of a sudden, another one would, I'd get it, we'd talk to someone about a completely unrelated matter and come to find out that they are experts on guiding people uh, outside of, of conflict areas. And we talk to another person we find as an expertise in developing a, a, a talent survey. Mm. And even today on the WhatsApp uh, thread, they're saying, when is the survey ready? Because we've already had someone donating all the uh, iPads, uh, to do the surveys and we have translators on the ground we're setting up. I mean, how can that all come to God just sitting in Davidson, North Carolina? I'm not doing anything, mm, really. Just right. talking to people on the phone and trying to connect people. But but there are good people. Just keep praying. Yes. And that work would grow that the uh, weaknesses that we have would be strengthened. And, and maybe the U.S. government would step up and say, you know, we'll help We'll help resettle 10,000 people. And what's that going to cost the U.S. government, really? Yeah. To do yeah. That's nothing. So why should the private sector and all these people put up millions of their dollars in their pocket when the U.S. and struggling when the, the U.S. government without, you know, just some of the money they were uh, allocating for Af Afghanistan that, that's no longer relevant, they gave us 10% of that. We could settle all these people tomorrow. Yeah. Well, this is this is uh, so helpful, Mark. Uh, your description of the impact of prayer is also is also good for us. This is the the God that is among us and th works through us, and so the right people right people will be the the fruits of prayer to add into this network and uh, the collection of talents. Hopefully, we'll start to bring some step-by-step -step solutions to this. I would like to close by speaking to our listeners here. If you yourself have a way to be helpful, find us through any of the many communications lines where this podcast and interview will be run. You, we, you will have a way to contact us, whether you find us on YouTube, through our websites, and everywhere where you will come across through the podcast network where you find us, we'll have access to ourselves. And if you're hearing something and you know someone or you are someone yourself with talents that can support this urgent work, as Mark said, there's lives minute by minute at stake. And uh, we're very grateful to have uh, Mark so close to the ground and able to instruct us and inform us, certainly for me, things that I, I just never, never knew. So, Mark, thank you very much for taking time today to uh, be with us. Frank, I would say thank you for your heart, your compassion, for your intellect, and just your willingness to spend these 40-some minutes talking about an issue, an issue but that most Americans think is rather so far away from them, right. but it's really close to home. It's part of our responsibility, and I'm thankful that you bring allowing people to get slightly enlightened for prayer 
and maybe, as you said, one of them say, well, I have a network that I could plug in to do something that would help in this process. We, you would be more than welcome. Very good. This is great. Mark, we'll speak again soon. There's so much more that you do. Every bit of it is interesting. And I'm glad we got this one out today. Take good care and we'll be back together again soon, Mark. God bless you, Frank. Thank you for all you do. Thank you. Bye-bye.